morning, which is Galatians 2, 11 through 16. So you can turn there if you have your Bibles. All right, Galatians 2, starting in verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. All right, good morning. My name is Brandon. I serve as uh, lead pastor at Midtown, and uh, glad to have you with us. If you're new, welcome. You've jumped into uh, kind of the frying pan with us this morning as we start a new series on uh, justice and reconciliation. As we do that, I want to explain why we're going to be teaching about this for the next month. We've talked about issues around uh, race and reconciliation and justice as a church. Uh, we've prayed over them in a significant number of ways since our inception eight years ago, but we've never done a series. And so this is about two years in the making. Uh, actually, a group of our deacons and minority leadership in our church a couple years ago came to us and said, hey, we're having a lot of kind of uh, scattered conversations, and there's some really great things happening, but we feel like it'd really benefit our church to have this discussion on Sunday morning. And, uh, and so I want to kind of explain why we're preaching this right now, why this is uh, central to our heart as a church, and then, uh, and then I want to talk through uh, the Bible together. So uh, two primary reasons why we're tackling uh, this topic. Um, one is that we want to reconnect the gospel to justice and reconciliation. So we're not preaching on this because this is trendy, because this is cool, because this is what culture is kind of talking about right now. Uh, we're glad that there's been an awareness over the past, <clears throat> I don't know, five, ten years that uh, we don't actually live in a post-racial society, which has been an awakening for some people. Uh, but we're not talking about this because culture's talking about this. We, um, some of you may say, why, why talk about this? Shouldn't we just preach the gospel, right? Shouldn't we just talk about the gospel and about salvation? Why are we talking about social issues? Why are we talking about political issues? Uh, isn't even the conversation itself divisive that we're talking about uh, racial reconciliation and racial justice? Isn't that very topic itself divisive? Like, why are we going there um, isn't this just a social or political issue? No. The answer of Paul, the answer of the Bible, is that this is a gospel issue, and that's why we're talking about this primarily, because this is about the nature of God. This is about the nature of his gospel. This is about the nature of what it means to be human. This is about the nature of God's vision for flourishing in the church. Um, this is the heart of God. This is the mission of God for his people in the world. And I believe if we're going to move from I think some of our struggles as a church, um, probably um, given kind of our backgrounds and look around, you know, you can see certain things about our church uh, from a diversity standpoint. Uh, one of our big challenges, I think, is going to be uh, dealing with indifference, right? Dealing with indifference. Um, so we want to we move from, and I'm not saying that's everybody, and that's, that's a very generalized statement, but for some of us, we're disoriented in this space, we're tired in this space, we're confused in this space, we're angry maybe in this space, but I think a lot of us are just feeling helpless and paralyzed and powerless, and we don't really know what to do in these conversations, so we kind of pull back. And so I believe if we're going to move from indifference to active participation, we must be convinced in our bones this is a gospel issue, that the Bible actually teaches this, commands this. Like that to me is the only thing that's going to sustain uh, a, a heart for this. Um, others of us maybe say, well, no, I, I know this is not more than a gospel. I know this is a gospel issue, but why are we taking so much time? I'm going to preach a whole message here on 
gospel? Like, really? Like, do we really need to do that? Why does it matter what we believe? Like, Christians are already kind of just, like, talk too much. Talk, 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 right? Theologize, intellectualize this conversation. Let's get out and do something, right? You might be sitting here saying, I live in Broderpool. I'm woke, right? Like, that's the reason I live in the city, right? Like, I want to see the system change. And if we just get out and start doing stuff, then everything will resolve itself. Can I hear you? But I would also say, um, be careful, right? Because it does matter what you believe. And I believe that unless you allow the gospel of Jesus to penetrate the depths of your heart, you will simply perpetuate cycles of bitterness, cycles of violence, self-righteousness, and eventually burn out in your pursuit of justice. I was talking after the first service to one of our members, and she said, man, the work of justice is so, she's in this field, the work of justice is so overwhelming. I'm so thankful that Jesus cares about this and that he's given me his Holy Spirit to empower me in this work. Without him, I don't know what I'd do. And that is what all of us need. Don't take it just from me, though. Hear it in the words of John Perkins, who was an African-American in the civil rights movement uh, several decades ago, still living. He, He says this, reflecting his autobiography, Let Justice Roll Down. Uh, He says, one of the greatest tragedies of the civil rights movement is that evangelicals surrendered their leadership in the movement by default to those with either a bankrupt theology or no theology at all, simply because the vast majority of Bible-believing Christians ignored a great and crucial opportunity in history for genuine ethical action. The evangelical church whose basic theology, and he's using that here as a term for essentially the, cons- like the conservative majority white church, <clears throat> whose basic theology is the same as mine, had not gone on to preach the whole gospel. The title of our message today, borrowed from Dr. Perkins, is the whole gospel. What does it mean to, if we're going to say, just preach the gospel, I don't think we often understand what we're saying when we say, let's just preach the gospel. And so uh, that's what we're going to talk about today. Let me say this also as we set this up, that justice and reconciliation is not limited to racial and ethnic issues. I realize that, right? When we talk about justice, when we talk about reconciliation, it's more than race and ethnicity. It's more than the black-white divide. For those of us who grew up in Indianapolis, this is a big deal. Uh, It's not less than that, right? And so this is going to be race and ethnicity is going to be the primary lens through which we look at justice and reconciliation And here's why, because we think, our pastors think, as we live life with you and we live life in the city, that this issue is still a festering wound in the story of the Indianapolis church. Both past and then how it continues to impact relationships and continues to impact uh, how people experience life in Indianapolis, it's such a festering wound. So that's why we're going to look at it primarily through that lens. But we realize, as Dr. King said, that an injustice anywhere is an injustice everywhere, and that justice anywhere can also become justice everywhere. So we hope that you'll kind of understand that we're not saying this is all that's on the table with this conversation. So reconnecting the gospel and, and reconciliation and justice, and also reconnecting justice and reconciliation with spiritual formation, right? With discipleship, basically. We, we've, we've talked over the last year about spiritual formation, and we've given you this simple definition of of what it means to be a church that's centered around uh, and centered on spiritual formation. In other words, practicing the way of Jesus together for the life of the world. Now, I scoured my library. I went to seminary, got a doctorate. I've read lots and lots of books on spirituality and discipleship. I went through my whole library looking for an instance where somebody put justice and reconciliation as a spiritual discipline. Do you know how many of my books that I found that had justice and or reconciliation listed as a formational habit for the life of a Christian. One, Adele Calhoun's Spiritual Disciplines Handbook, a great resource I would highly recommend. One, now that may say something about my library, but I think it also says something about the state of Christianity and how we think about spirituality. You will look in vain in the classical works on spiritual disciplines that talk about justice and reconciliation. Now here's what's interesting. Let's take a basic spiritual discipline like prayer. Right? Everybody agrees we should pray as Christians, okay? I don't think there's any dispute about that. Part of our discipleship. Do you know how many times prayer is mentioned at least in the Bible? Just the, if you do a word search. 170 plus times. Do you know how many times justice and reconciliation is mentioned in the Bible? If you just do a word search, 160 times. Why is it that we talk about prayer 
but we don't talk about justice and reconciliation as a fundamental foundational component to our discipleship with Jesus. We leave it out. We assume. I think we assume it's going to happen, and it doesn't. And what we assume, we know what happens, right? So uh, I want to encourage us to reconnect this to discipleship. This is every much as as part of our spiritual discipline as prayer and fasting and any other topic we think of when we think of discipleship. So here's our definition for this series, um, what we mean by justice and reconciliation as a spiritual formation habit. Restoring people and places and systems from hostility to harmony with God, with one another, and with creation or with the world. Right? That's, that's what we think that God's calling us towards. It's a restoration work. We want to invite you to engage in this series, to, to think, to learn, to read alongside of us. We've created a ton of resources for you because, again, um, I was talking to James Piscasio, who's our deacon, one of our deacons of racial reconciliation, and we were kind of talking about how this conversation is kind of like if you haven't been to the gym for a long time. And you go to the gym that first time and you're like feeling buff and you're kind of looking in the mirror and looking swole. And then, and then what happens like two days later, you wake up on that, that like second day and you feel destroyed, right? Like your entire body feels sore. You're taking ad, but maybe this is just me at 39. But the older you get, like the slower the recovery is, the more that it hurts, and the longer that it's been since you've been in the gym. That's kind of what it's going to feel like in this conversation, right? I mean, there's a collective anxiety, right? And, and it's going to feel uncomfortable. It's gonna, there's going to be pain. There's going to be sadness. There's going to be lots of emotions as we show up for this conversation. And so I want to invite you to just kind of lean into that and, and, and take this as an opportunity to educate yourself. Even if you don't agree with the stuff that we teach, ultimately, educate yourself, right? Like um, how many of my minority friends would say to me and to uh, other white people, like, Please just, like, you can read books. Stop asking me questions that you can find on your own. And it's true. Like, we don't take the time to read. We don't take the time to read the way we study in other areas with this area. So we have given you and curated some resources on our website, somany.com slash justice. There's a number of things on there from there be podcasts put up to MC practice guides to all kinds of a glossary of terms so that you know what we mean when we say certain words. Um, that's been part of the problem here is people come to our church and leave our church because they'll hear a word that triggers something that then they think because, you know, they've been discipled in a more political way or discipled by a certain media outlet, they think we mean that word. And so this is kind of our attempt to say, this is what we mean. And let's all be on the same page. Color of Compromise is a great book. Wide Awake was written by a white pastor in Chicago who was a suburban uh, megachurch pastor and then planted a church in the Humboldt neighborhood of Chicago and describes his very personal journey from disorientation to kind of active participation. Divided by Faith is a sociological look at things. And then the Gospel of Color is a resource for families that I cannot recommend enough. From the teaching to the artistry, we see black and brown skin in the artistry of the Bible, which is actually what was happening when you read the Old Testament. Um, And so this is really good. We've bought licenses for Gospel and Color for all parents in the church. All you have to do is go to our website, download it, and you'll get a PDF. And then we want to encourage you to use that this month to stimulate conversations with your children. And I bet, I bet some of the basic concepts in there you as an adult will find extremely helpful as well. So those are our resources for uh, this series along with a number of others. So okay, let me just reiterate before we get into the text um, that I know there's a lot of anxiety in this conversation. And our hope for you is that you would show up well, right? Like I know everybody has a story with race. Everybody has a story with how they've experienced ethnicity, their skin, um, their bodies, And this can trigger all kinds of things, but I want to encourage us to show up well, which means to be humble, to be gracious in how we interact with one another, to be open and curious and not assume that um, you've arrived, to to really have more of a listening posture, as James says in chapter 1, quick to listen, slow to speak. That as we engage in places, it would not be just about me expressing my opinion, but me assuming that I have something to learn in this conversation. And I think if you will approach this with the posture of a learner, you'll be able to do what Paul goes on to say in Galatians chapter 6 is really the heart of church life together, which is bearing one another's burdens. There are some serious burdens in this body with race and ethnicity and in our country. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of sadness, so much sadness. There's shame, there's anger, and there's confusion. 
And here's the thing, we're all gonna get some things wrong in the next month and for the rest of our lives. Can we just start by saying that together? We, let's say it together, we are going to get some things wrong. Great, now do you believe that? Do you believe? Because if you do, it will change the way you engage with each other. You're going and I'm going to say things that are inappropriate. You're gonna say some things that may be perceived by other people to be racist or might even be racist. You're gonna cross the line. You're gonna cross some boundaries. There's gonna be a heaviness that sits and lingers in these conversations over the next few weeks. And I wanna encourage us to stay with the pain. Right? Stay with the pain. Remember, this is not an issue to be solved. These are people to be loved. We are people to be loved. We are wounded people who need to be healed and we need to be loved. So don't push away from the table. When somebody says something crazy or you think something crazy, it's okay. Don't run away, right? There's so much fragility in this space, and we need the power of the Holy Spirit and the presence of our brothers and sisters to help us build more resilience in this area. Some of us are weak here. We have very little resilience. We get tired easy. We flag easily, and that's okay. But here's the thing. If you push away from the table and you run away, who's going to disciple your brothers and sisters? We perpetuate more alienation and more separation if we all run at the first sign of conflict. So I want to encourage us to press in and lean in together and to be gracious and to show up well as we have these conversations. Now, Galatians chapter 2. Great intro, right? Long intro. Galatians chapter 2. We see here um, a very, very, very important incident in the life of the early church. This passage tells us something about the heart of God. And it tells us something about the heart of human beings that's very important. And it says something to us in our moment that's very important for us to notice. What we see here in this early community, this is a multi-ethnic community, right? The church at Antioch is the first really truly urban multi-ethnic church. It's the first place Antioch where believers were called Christians. It's, and it's interesting because this would not be the likely way that the church would arise in a place like Antioch. It was the third largest city in the Roman Empire, right? So like a Chicago. It's a big city, not the biggest, but a big city. Seleucus, who was the architect who actually built, he was one of Alexander the Great's uh, generals, he built this city and he built it around 18 different ethnic quarters because he, he knew something about ethnocentrism. He knew something about racism. And he says, if you mix people together, bad things are gonna happen. So if you think about where Antioch was located, it was right between Africa and Asia. So you had Greeks and you had Jews and you had Africans and you had all kinds of people mixing together, but segregated. So the gospel goes out into the city. Paul preaches the gospel. The gospel goes into the city through a line of different preachers and teachers. And we have now the first multi-ethnic church. And they called them Christians because they didn't know what else to call them. Right? It's the first religion where religion's not based on racial identity or tribal identity. It's a multi-ethnic movement. And what we see here in addressing this issue of ethnicity is that ethnicity is at the very heart of the earliest gospel conversations in the church. Before they were debating, centuries later, the nature of the scriptures, before they were debating atonement theories or the Trinity or the Holy Spirit, which split the church a couple of centuries later, the very first debate in the early church was around ethnicity. The very first council, you can read about it in Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem Council, was about race and ethnicity in their sociological context. They didn't have race the way we have race. And, and the issue here is that Peter pulls back from this fellowship of Jew and Gentile. Because to sit at the table and eat with somebody, which the text says was a regular habit of Peter before this group comes in that's trying to bring the Mosaic law, the Judaizers. They were basically teaching that in order to truly be a Christian, you had to believe in Jesus and become a Jew. It says Peter is afraid, he pulls back, and Paul calls him out on it. He says, you're racist behavior, your prejudice is not in line with the gospel. To pull back from table fellowship in that day basically meant, I don't receive you, right? Because there was, this was a culinary culture where the table was everything. The table was about holiness. It was about cleanliness. It's about who's in and who's out. Not how we're kind of, we think about table now, but it was a big deal for them. 
And he says, and this is so important, your behavior is not in line with the gospel. It's not in step with the gospel. The word there is the word orthopedia, from which we get our word orthopedic. It means you're not straight walking. You're not walking. It's as if the gospel is a plumb line, and it introduces a straight line, and it says, walk this way, to quote a famous singer. Walk this way. He wasn't walking that way. And so Paul calls him on it. He says, not only are you not in step with the gospel, you're preaching a false gospel. This is a distorted, perverted gospel because this gospel elevates ethnicity. This gospel says not only do you have to believe in Jesus, justification by faith, now you have to become a Jew, which means justification by works. So he's saying that is not going to do Peter the apostle. Now, how, the question this begs is how is this out of step with the gospel? If we're going to understand this, this situation, we have to back up and say, what is the gospel? Right? What is the gospel? Because that's a, that's a term that we've become so familiar with, and yet so many of us don't understand or don't seek to live out the fullness of the whole gospel. So let's just backtrack a little bit here and kind of double-click on this word gospel, and let's see what Paul means when he says your conduct is not in step. You're not straight-walking in the gospel. Back in chapter 1, if you look back in verse 11, Paul says that I received this gospel not from human origins, but I received it directly from a revelation of Jesus Christ. I didn't get this from men. Jesus himself told me what it means to experience the gospel. Now, the question is, okay, well then what did Jesus mean? What did Jesus teach when he talked about the gospel? So let's go back again to Mark chapter 1. Jesus talked about the gospel a lot. In one of his earliest declarations, he says this in Mark chapter 1. Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel, the good news is literally what the gospel means, the good news of God, saying the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, turn around, and walk the other way. Believe the good news. Now, for some of us, that word kingdom of God doesn't mean anything, or it's confusing. What does he mean by kingdom of God? But for any Jew that would have been reading Mark's letter, they would have known exactly what Jesus was talking about here, because Jesus just didn't just invent this out of thin air. He didn't just come up with a term and say, you know what, gospel kingdom, that sounds great, that'll sell some books, I can, you know, put that out on Twitter, uh, that'll be great. No, there's a long history here. Jesus is importing something that would have spoke deeply into the Jewish imagination, and they would have known exactly what he was talking about. Because when you double-click on gospel and the kingdom of God, the gospel of the kingdom, you essentially go back to the very beginning. What, what is Jesus talking about when he's talking about the gospel of the kingdom? The word kingdom means the reign and the rule of God, simply. The kingdom of God is pictured most clearly in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. It's shalom, but it's this rich Hebrew word that means peace. Genesis chapter 1 gives us this. So I want to go back and look at this quickly and just make some notes and, and talk about how I think this ties into justice and reconciliation. Shalom is, is the world essentially made right. Peace is not just the absence of hostility. It's actually everything put to rights. Nicholas Wolterstorff, who was a philosopher at Yale and Calvin College here in Michigan, uh, says this. He says, Shalom is the human being dwelling at peace in all his or her relationships with God, with self, with fellows, with nature. What God desires for God's human creatures is that comprehensive mode of flourishing that is shalom. Shalom includes religious reconciliation, but it includes vastly more as well. Insofar as someone is suffering injustice, just insofar one of the goods to which that person has title or claim, a good essential to her flourishing, is not being enjoyed by her. God's love of justice is grounded in God's longing for the shalom of God's creatures and in God's sorrow over its absence. So Genesis chapter 1 gives us a world of wholeness. It gives us a world of unity, right? Unity. Think about even the poetry in Genesis chapter 1. The heavens and the earth. The water and the land. 
male and female. There's a complementarity. There's a wholeness here that God is pointing us towards that is the idea of shalom. And then he says in the midst of that wholeness, he places, he creates man and woman to be co-rulers, kings and queens of the universe. They're, because they're created in the image of God, they're, they're literally the wording there is icons. They are reflections of God, and they are representations of God to the world, so that when you see men and women together living out their vocations, you are seeing God. That's the richness of the Imago Dei, the image of God. It's about dignity. It's about wholeness. It's about unity, right? Because God is one. Man and woman together create a one. Heaven and earth create a one. And it's about solidarity. It's, it's when I look at you, I see God. When you look at me, you see God. I don't see an other. I see the very image of God. It's as if I'm looking in a mirror. And that creates this deep solidarity. And this is important and foundational if you're going to understand biblical justice. Right? Biblical justice is rooted in shalom. It means nothing apart from shalom. The, the biblical vision of shalom is ultimately about the nature of God, the godness of God, and the humanness of human beings. That's what's at stake when we talk about justice and reconciliation. And I say that because the way that our world talks about justice is in a very narrow frame. Our world talks about justice in terms of retributive justice, right? Punishment. Somebody's broken a law, they've done something wrong, and they need to be brought to justice. And while it's true in some cases that justice in the Bible does speak to that, right? God is not indifferent towards evil. He does punish wrongdoers. He does bring people to justice and systems to justice. But there is a more basic vision of justice in the Bible that is higher and more beautiful than that. It's what we might call primary justice or restorative justice. Primary justice means that we render to every person, the just society is one in which we render to every person their rights as image bearers of God. Because they're image bearers, they have claims on us, and we have claims on them because we're created equally in value, dignity, and worth as image bearers. So it's not just about punishment. God doesn't love punishment because he loves to uh, you know, rain down wrath on people. God loves justice because he loves the vulnerable. He loves the victims of injustice because they're created in his image. And justice is somewhat of a charter for protecting the most vulnerable among us. Even linguistically, when you look at the words for justice, right, um, we see that uh, there's three primary words in the Bible for justice. Mitzpah and Sedek in the Old Testament. And the Dikaios kind of brings those together in the Greek and the New Testament. And when you look at those words, what's interesting is that those words can mean either righteousness or justice, right? So we see that just linguistically, justice is both an attribute and an action. So the way we tend to read the Bible is we say when you see that word righteousness, we think of personal holiness. We think of a status before God. But you can actually read every one of those also as justice. So for instance, the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. We tend to think of that in terms of personal morality. Blessed are those who are holy. And that's not wrong, but it's incomplete. You could also render that same translation based on the, the language, de kausune, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice. Imagine how much it might change your reading of the Bible if every time you're tempted to see righteousness and justice as personal morality, you actually begin to read it as also public social justice. That is what it means. So we see justice is this rich concept. Wolterstoff goes on to say, without justice, shalom is wounded. And that's exactly what happens throughout the rest of the Old Testament, that shalom is broken through sin. And we'll look at this in great detail next week, which unleashes the dark powers of the evil one. Shame and idolatry and injustice and oppression and violence flow right on the heels of the first sin. That is where racism comes from ultimately. That is where prejudice comes from ultimately. It is the sin of our parents, right? And it gets embedded in all kinds of structures. And we'll trace all that out and talk about that next week. But I want, what I want you to see for this week is the rest of the Old Testament, 
God spends pursuing this new family, adopting a new family who would create a new society that spreads shalom and love and justice to the ends of the earth. That is what God's doing in the Old Testament, not just saving individuals for heaven. He's rescuing a people of shalom. That's what we see, and I'll just put some of these up here. I wish we had time to go into depth with all of these, but five of, the, five of the big themes we see in the Old Testament, I want you to read them as we go through the slides, but I'm not going to unpack them here. Five things that we see in terms of justice and reconciliation and how God does that in the Old Testament. God is just. It's part of his character and nature. God loves justice. He doesn't just kind of like it. He doesn't just do it sometimes. This isn't just a side issue for God. He loves it part of his steadfast love for human beings. He does justice. He doesn't just talk about it or think about it. God commands his image bearers, that's us, to imitate him by doing justice, especially toward the quartet of the vulnerable. We talked about them earlier. And then finally, God's plan is to reconcile the nations to himself and create a new society of shalom. So let me just go through these slides. You can snap a picture or whatever, come back to this later, but here they are. The first one, God is just. Take a look at that. It's the foundation of his throne. God loves justice, Psalm 33. God does justice, Psalm 146. He executes it for all of these vulnerable populations. He commands us, Zechariah 7, to do justice. Isaiah 49, his plan is to reconcile the nations to himself and create a new society of shalom. Now, at this point, some of you may be tempted to go, well, that's just the Old Testament. Jesus didn't ever talk about it. But I think Jesus would beg to differ. Jesus' earliest announcements, let's go to the New Testament here quickly, demonstrate that he saw himself as the promised Messiah who would restore God's kingdom of shalom on earth. Look at Luke chapter 4, the very first time Jesus stands up in a temple, he unrolls a scroll of Isaiah and he begins to read from Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Like the ultimate mic drop, (laughs) it just walks away. I'm here. I'm the embodiment of all of these longings, all of these promises for justice and reconciliation. It is here. I am here. I am he. In his life and ministry, This is what he's about. He continues these themes of justice and inclusion of the Gentiles in God's plan of redemption, right? His life is a life lived for justice. We don't have time again to get into all the passages, but he moves in with the poor. He shares meals with the marginalized. He fed the hungry. He made the hated Samaritan ethnic minority, a biracial people, the hero of his most famous parable, the Good Samaritan. He challenged people to throw feasts for the poor, the blind, the disabled. He encouraged people to sell their possessions and give to the poor. And one of his strongest indictments on the religious leadership that you see in all of the Gospels, Matthew 23, 23, look at what he says to the Pharisees. Woe to you, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the other. The weightier matters, not the side social issues, the weightier matters. He talks about and models reconciliation. Matthew chapter 12, verse 18. I will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He goes on to say later in that passage, I will, I, I will cause Gentiles to put their hope in me. He draws near to a Samaritan woman. He crosses racial and social and economic boundaries with a demon-possessed Gadarene man. He healed a Canaanite woman's daughter. He healed a Roman centurion's uh, child as well, a Syrophoenician woman, Simon the Cyrene who was an African. All of these people that nobody else would go to, nobody else would touch, nobody else would see. Jesus says, these are my people. 
These are my people. They're included in what God's doing in the world. Why? Because it says something about God. It says something about the heart of God, the mission of God. It's central to what God's about in the world. When people see this happening, it's supposed to literally blow their minds. People don't have a category for it because we don't just gather together with people that we would sociologically normally gather with if if Jesus didn't raise from the dead and do what he did. If that's all we're doing, then we're just engaging in sociology, not the power of the gospel. John 17, this is what Jesus prays for his disciples. I pray that they would be one, I and them, and you and me, that they may become perfectly one. That's what God's after, oneness, unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. When you see a divided church, you see a gospel being proclaimed that is saying false things about God. The church is divided. God is divided. The church is one. God is one. It's a credibility issue for the church. We're saying wrong things about God when we separate ourselves or allow ourselves to be separated from our brothers and sisters of other races and ethnicities. That's what Jesus is saying here. And this crazy verse uh, in John chapter 14 that he throws in, he says, this is not just my mission, by the way. John 14, 12, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me, that's all of us who put our faith in Jesus, will also do the works that I do. What works? The works of justice, the works of reconciliation, the work of repentance and faith and hope and love. And listen to this, greater works than these will they do. Because I'm going back to my father. And we see that it's exactly what happens if you read the rest of the New Testament. Read the book of Acts. I'll throw these up on the screen. The Holy Spirit empowers the apostles to continue Jesus' work of justice and reconciliation. This is just a small sample of the many ways which the church lived into this vision of reconciliation and justice. The Apostle Paul writing to one of these multi-ethnic urban communities that he founded in Ephesus, you can read about it in Acts chapter 19, probably lays out the clearest explanation of the whole gospel in his letter to the Ephesians. He spends the first two chapters saying, this is the gospel. God has predestined you. God has rescued you. God has sealed you with the Holy Spirit. Chapter one, chapter two, for by grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves, lest anyone should boast. And then right in chapter 2, verse 11, he jumps into this next passage, and he says, okay, now, what does that mean for you? What does that mean for the church? What is the gospel, what should the gospel be doing in the church? Look at this next slide here. He lays out this beautiful theology. Remember that at one time, you Gentiles, so again, he's talking ethnicity, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what's called the circumcision, made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself, Jesus, is our shalom. He is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments, he's deconstructed human and religious and spiritual systems that keep us alienated and separated from one another. In his flesh, he has deconstructed systemic injustice and racism and prejudice and hostility and resentment and anything that keeps us apart. That he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God and one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So what is reconciliation? Let me give us a definition that we'll be working off of throughout the series, the restoring and healing process that grows out of God's divine act. It's God's work, not ours, primarily. Involving the continual practice of forgiveness, repentance, and justice that transforms broken relationships, systems, and structures into the way God intends them to be. Reconciliation is both vertical between us and God through the cross. 
God removes any obstacle, our sin, our hostility against him, our resentment that would keep us away from God, and he brings us to himself. And then as he's bringing us to himself individually, he places us in a family, and that reconciliation now becomes horizontal. Now it begins to impact the way that not only I see myself and I see God, but the way I see you. Now you're not an other. Now you're us. Now we're in solidarity. He's recreating the Imago Dei from Genesis chapter 1 in the church. All of the hostility, all of the separation, all of the exclusion, he says, these are gospel issues because they say things that are not true about God and about the church and about Jesus. And in 2 Corinthians 5, he says, now go live this. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Therefore, you've been given a ministry of reconciliation. Go live as peacemakers. Don't allow yourself to be co-opted by the systems of the world which want you to be peace fakers, but be a peacemaker. Don't fake peace. Disrupt false peace. That's the, that's the call. Be a reconciler when it comes to ethnicity and race. That's one of the ways you give credibility to the gospel is you don't just talk about it, you don't just sing about it, you live into it with your very life. And you lay down your life like Jesus did to see it happen. So what does all that mean for us today? What does this say to us today? Because we don't live in the same times that Peter and Paul lived in, right? So what does all this mean for us? How does this give us a framework to think about race and injustice and reconciliation here in America? Because here's the thing. What we're experiencing in modern America with race and racism and what some have called racialization, and we'll define all of those terms next week as we talk through this, it's not exactly the same as what they were experiencing in their sociological context. They did not have race. Okay, race is a 16th century sociological construct. It is a fiction invented for very specific purposes. They had ethnic groups, just like in America, prior to the 16th century, 17th century, we had ethnic groups. You weren't white, right? You were Irish or European or whatever. You, you, there was no white. There was just ethnic groups. So it's a little bit different there in terms of the Jew-Gentile thing. But the underlying patterns, the issues, the gospel concerns are the same, and we can mine them for application to issues of racial justice and what I'll call, and others have called, racial conciliation, in America, right? Because we've never had conciliation in the first place, so we can't really reconcile what's not first there. But we can talk about what it would look like for us to experience conciliation socially and then reconciliation as believers in Jesus Christ because we're being reconciled back to one new man, back to Genesis 1. So here's the thing, three quick applications. Racial and ethnic injustice, exclusion, or indifference preaches a false gospel. It says things that are not true about God. And I'm convinced if we don't see these issues as gospel issues, if they're just social issues, if they're just political issues, if they're just economic issues, if they're just the white church's problem or the black church's problem or the Hispanic church's problem or whatever, if they're just American issues, if they're not gospel issues, we will not see healing. We will not have the humility to repent because this requires hard work. It is deeply personal. It requires looking at our families. It requires looking our history square in the face and being honest about where we've, came from, where we've come from and how we got to where we are, which is super unsettling for many of us, especially in central Indiana. We will not have the humility to repent, nor will we have the courage to hope. We will not exercise faith. We'll be pessimistic and cynical. We will not be able to love our neighbors as ourselves. We will not be able to engage what I believe is the fundamental battle is really, it is demonic, right? It is demonic, ideological, and spiritual strongholds that oppress the American church that then manifest in the, the, the division that we see and the injustice that we see in our world. And we'll go into all of that again next week. But this is important for us to see this as a gospel issue. It's always been a gospel issue for Soma, right? We started this church saying, this is our vision for church. We want to see God do this. We're praying for God to do this work among us, right? This is personal for me. Like, my daughter is biracial. This is, this is about my life. This is about me wanting my daughter to grow up in a different country 
where she doesn't have to be discriminated based on the color of her skin. This is about me wanting a different kind of church where she can feel comfortable and she could see faces and, and, and experience stories that look like hers. And so she can see the gospel of Jesus lifted up in all of its beautiful, rich diversity. This is strategic for us as a church also. This, change, this, this should impact, and it has impacted, how we hire, how we think about where we plant churches and the neighborhoods we plant churches in, all of that. But, but here's the thing. As much as we've tried to talk about this and pray towards this, we've gotten a lot wrong. I mean, look around. We've gotten a lot wrong. We don't even reflect the demographics of our neighborhood. This neighborhood here, 36,000 people who live in this midtown area around the church, 80% of them are white. 30, 13% of them are African-American. 3% of them are Hispanic. I've been in both services today. We don't look that way. So we're getting some things wrong. And we need to own that and confess those things. Confession is the first step. And if we don't own them, if we don't acknowledge them, we will continue to transmit them and perpetuate them. Listen to the words of Dr. King on Good Friday in his letters from the Birmingham jail. I've heard numerous religious leaders of the South call upon their worshipers to comply with a desegregation decision because it's the law, because they have to. But I've longed to hear white ministers say, follow this decree because integration is morally right and the Negro is your brother. In the midst of blatant injustices inflicted upon the Negro, I've watched white churches stand on the sidelines and merely mouth pious irrelevancies and sanctimonious trivialities. In the midst of a mighty struggle to rid our nation of racial and economic injustice, I have heard so many ministers say, those are social issues which the gospel has nothing to do with. And I've watched so many churches commit themselves to a completely otherworldly religion which made a strange distinction between bodies and souls, the sacred and the secular. May it not be so here. It's a false gospel. Secondly, disrupting racism requires us to reclaim our prophetic voice, the church to reclaim her prophetic voice. Paul confronts Peter publicly because he says this is so dangerous. Racism and prejudice is dangerous. It is a cancer that metastasizes. It begins to impact Barnabas, one of the founders of the church of Antioch. And it spreads like gangrene. It spreads fear instead of love. It perpetuates stereotypes and the ways that we think about people when we show up and we're suspicious because of the color of their skin. Those kinds of things get into the body of Christ and in a homogenous environment, they begin to infect it with a disease. And, Pete, and Paul says, no, no, no. You're condemning people, not making them whole. And so we need to reclaim this prophetic voice that is not afraid to say, hey, this is wrong. This needs to be changed. This is a false gospel, which means that we need to confront dangerous uh, solutions like being colorblind, right? Which is the way that most of us under the age of 45, we're taught, right? Again, by well-intentioned by kind of our society and our families, just be colorblind. That's been the advice to every uh, generation of dominant majority people since slavery, just be nice to them. Be nice to the slaves. Be nice during J Jim Crow segregation. Be nice. As long as you're nice and you're not personally a racist, everything's okay. No, that won't do. That's not healing anything. That denigrates race and ethnicity in ways that are actually not seen in Scripture. Scripture doesn't say our ethnicity goes away when we become Christians. It just says it's surrendered. To the Lordship of Christ. But it's never sequestered. And those are very different realities. Race plays a significant role in the shaping of our identity and our relationships. And while it must be surrendered to the Lord for healing, nobody should have to sequester a part of the Imago Dei when they show up in this church or when they show up in our neighborhoods. Shouldn't. There's no, as Brian Loritz likes to say, ethnic home team in the kingdom of God. Daniel Hill in the book Wide Awake says this, the system of race that we've created in America is fraught with sin. And it's played a powerful role in shaping the sense of identity of every human being who has lived here. 
From the time that you're little, you're discipled into a certain way of thinking about your race and your ethnicity, and it's largely unconscious, he says. Therefore, it'd be naive for devoted followers of Jesus to believe they can pursue the transformation of identity in Christ without also acknowledging the power of sin as evidenced by the impact of race. Our old self has been profoundly shaped by race, and we can't grow into the new and redeemed self without naming the presence of that sin, confessing the ways that it's impacted us, and doing all we can to break free of its former power. Lastly, and this is so important, racial, ethnic injustice, injustice and division are not inevitable and ultimate. In the end, God's kingdom vision of justice and reconciliation will triumph. So there is hopefulness here, and I hope that you take this away. I am not trying to guilt anybody with, the, with the, any of these sermons, shame anybody. There is grace upon grace for us. If we will turn away from our sin and we will trust in Jesus, he will bring healing. I mean, it's so encouraging to me. I don't know if this is encouraging to you. It is encouraging to me that an apostle can get race wrong and ethnicity wrong. Like, if an apostle can get it wrong, could it be true also that maybe, just maybe, you're also getting it wrong? All of us have blind spots when it comes to living out the gospel, straight walking the gospel. And so we need to be continually open to areas where ongoing awareness and then repentance and faith and hope and love are necessary so that we can one day experience on this earth the reality of Revelation chapter 5, right? This is the end of the story, so to speak. Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 through 10. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation, worshiping in their own languages with their cultures, gathered around the throne of God, celebrating their Savior. The church is a just, reconciled community. It is. The question is not, do we need to just increase our diversity and inclusion metrics? so that we can pat ourselves on the back and say we're one of the 2.5% multi-ethnic churches in America. That's not the question we should be asking ourselves. The question we should be asking ourselves is where are we not living in line with the gospel? What does repentance look like for us so that we're no longer separated and segregated so we no, we no longer allow what's happening around us culturally to place us into certain housing and sociological groups such that we don't interact with other brothers and sisters in Christ and walk in the unity that God's promised us we're going to see and experience one day in heaven. This will not happen organically. It will only happen intentionally. And it is not a work that we do in our own power and strength. I'll close with a quote from Jamar Tisby in his book, The Color of Compromise. Reconciliation across racial and ethnic lines is not something Christians must achieve, but a reality we must receive. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your grace. God, I thank you for the good news that our salvation is not based on ethnicity or race. That I don't have to do anything or become a certain culture or class or race to be welcomed into your kingdom. But God, we are justified by faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone. And so God, we want to just believe you and trust in you that you are reconciling all things to yourself. And we want to, we want to experience that reality, God. We don't want to just talk about it. We don't want to just read about it in books. We want to live in line with the gospel and taste the beauty and the richness of your kingdom come here in Indianapolis as it is in heaven. So God, would you make this more true among us? Would you lead us to deeper levels of repentance and deeper levels of faith? God, I pray that we would not walk out of here feeling ashamed, but God, that we would walk out of here feeling loved and empowered by your spirit to do the good works that you've promised for us in Christ Jesus. I pray this in your name. Amen. We're going to take communion.